The year 2022 was marked by three major paradigm shifts. The return of war to mainland Europe, the energy trilemma, and China's longer-term economic growth dynamics have all been outsized drivers of commodity markets. As we move into 2023, much uncertainty remains. To make sense of these seismic shifts and their impact on the key commodities that underpin the energy transition, Wood Mackenzie's Future Facing Commodities Forum returns on March 16th. The event focuses on the outlook for those materials that are key to building our electrified future, such as battery and EV materials, lithium, cobalt, nickel, copper, rare earths, cathode and precursor, graphite, and more. Register now at go.woodmac.com backslash FFCF. This is The Interchange Recharged. I'm David Bam Miller. It's such a difficult problem to solve, the storing of electrons. If it was easier, we'd have many solutions and you would see renewables being deployed more quickly because wind and solar today is 50 to 75% cheaper than the cheapest fully amortized fossil fuel plant. That's Rob Picconi. He's the co-founder and CEO of Energy Vault. The problem is storing those same electrons is not only expensive, but difficult to do sustainably. Energy Vault combines electricity storage with generation using kinetic energy to create electricity after long periods of storage. One of the biggest challenges facing us in the energy transition is the issue of storage. Not all energy storage is created equal. Pre- and post-generation storage are two different methods of storing energy on a grid scale. Pre-generation is an inventory of fuel that can be converted to energy, uranium for a nuclear plant, or even the waves used by wave power converters are both pre-generation storage. Post-generation, on the other hand, is the form of storage most synonymous with renewables. It's the simple process of storing surplus electricity to be used when it's needed. Upgrading the grid and our post-generation storage is an essential step on the road to decarbonization. Grid-related storage deployments between now and 2030 needs to be about 830 gigawatts. Investment needed to get us there? $270 billion. Rob, welcome. Thanks, Dave. Great to be here. Yeah, great to have you here. So tell us exactly how Energy Vault works. So Energy Vault was founded with the premise of around decarbonization, of course, and addressing a very important part of that, which is energy storage. And we founded the company with a premise of software and proprietary, in our first instance, gravity-based storage technology, which uh, gravity is the basis of what today is 90% of energy storage, which are the large pumped hydroelectric dams, but also with a premise of utilizing our software platform to address solving customer problems of any duration. So as we started with the company, we saw long duration. Uh, This is back four or five years ago. We saw that the long duration market would eventually become very important to the grid. As you add more renewables or intermittent energy supply to the grid, you by definition will need longer durations of storage to deal with that intermittency. So we began with a gravity energy storage project that would have the flexibility as a technology to address the long duration market, but also could be utilized for shorter durations as needed. So the way that technology works, very similar to pumped hydro, we use gravity where in our case, instead of water, which is the storage medium at height in a pumped hydroelectric facility, 
we developed a large composite blocks that are 25 metric tons. We avoided and do not use concrete to make those. We, through a very special process with Semex, use a polymer and just the soil from the ground to make that object that uses, um, essentially takes excess wind and solar when it's not needed or, or really any energy source that's abundant at any point in time. And that will run motors that lift these composite blocks to height. And at height, that's all potential energy. So go back to your high school physics classes. Uh, You have that object at height that is potential energy. And then those objects are lowered that then turn a motor through an inverter and generate and discharge that electricity. And that's all orchestrated with a vision system and AI-driven software platform. So it's fully autonomous. And we'll lower those blocks to discharge that electricity and controlling pace of that lowering so we could accelerate or decelerate. And that's fundamentally how the system works. And with roundtrip proficiency of between 80 to 85% is the most efficient of anything, any mechanical or thermodynamic process for energy storage in the market today. And so for the utility scale storage, I mean, you guys offer a couple different technological solutions. Can you walk us through that? Sure. Yeah. As we evolved the company and developed our first prototype of the gravity system, it was very clear to us as we spoke to customers across the globe that their needs for storage were not only going to be longer duration, which is where gravity is best suited, uh, although it can do short duration, but that they had immediate needs in the one, two to four hour market. And even some customers with some special use cases required even multi-day storage. So this had us accelerate our software platform development so that we could really be that partner of choice for customers, whether that be independent power players, uh, utilities in particular. And we also, Dave, had some unique insights because of our investor base. So for example, Saudi Aramco invested in the company in our Series C and in our IPO. In addition, we had BHP and Korea Zinc, two of the largest mining companies in the world out of Australia and Korea that invested in the company. So we had insights into use cases that industrial companies that were making commitments to decarbonize were facing that in those cases, we're going to need green hydrogen to help them make their clean energy transition. And because of all of that, we accelerated the development of our platform so we could support the shorter duration technology that today is really most of what's getting deployed, so lithium ion batteries. Uh, so we announced a few deals in the last year uh, with that, with both large utilities and independent power players in the United States and Australia. Our gravity system already is being deployed in China outside of Shanghai and in Texas with NL Green Power. So those will be the first two gravity energy storage systems. And then we announced a very interesting deal just uh, last month with PG&E that is focused on solving a very unique use case of a backup system where they need both immediate short Blackstar capability, but as well as multi-day storage. And to do that and not use a fossil fuel like natural gas, the only way to solve that with renewables was to integrate and combine lithium ion with green hydrogen for 48 to 96 hour storage. So that's basically the portfolio of short, long, and ultra long duration that we developed our software platform to support. So it really just depends on the use case for the storage in terms of the technology that is best deployed to meet those needs. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, you know, uniquely, uh, we're the only company today that's actually doing that across multiple durations. And that's a reflection of, I think, the expertise we bring to the table and looking at very practical new technologies, not forward technologies that aren't proven, but really focused on taking what's being deployed today and can be deployed reliably and with safety while leveraging new applications of technology mediums for storage coming to market, like green hydrogen, for example. 
And on the green hydrogen side, does your system actually produce the green hydrogen as well for the storage? Actually, in that case for PG&E, we designed and developed the system with the architecture to solve the need, but we are not making the green hydrogen. So in that case, we're actually going to be purchasing the green hydrogen. We're purchasing the hydrogen tanks and the fuel cell. And then we designed the whole physical layout and also the integration with the software to coexist with the lithium-ion batteries to support the daily needs, which they're going to use some of the lithium-ion for, but also to support for any planned safety event or is in California in this case where they have wildfires that can create problems as they did a few years ago, we can obviously turn on the hydrogen and have that discharge to provide the power on a multi-day basis to an entire town. So this is the city of Calistoga. So that's how the system came together and what we designed versus what we buy. And how does that compare to the Intermountain project right now with the hydrogen storage that will be used to generate electricity and pump into California? Well, that's a, a much longer term project for power generation. So a completely different use case and quite frankly, also time frame. So uh, that's something that's you know going to be developed you know here over the next 10 years to get to full functionality. This is an immediate need California has to provide a backup system for very specific multi-day storage. So a very different application and immediate need. And the only way to meet that today, if we would not have proposed this, would have been natural gas, which is, let's call it the lesser of the evils of, of fossil fuels. However, this use case really required something that could be put together for an immediate need that California has and is required by the Public Utility Commission. And how are you seeing the various, particularly on the battery side, how are you seeing the technologies develop, you know, over the past several years, call it maybe even five years and going forward? Well, I think if you look at the development and now the intensity that is partly driven by the IRA around lithium ion deployments, very focused on where they're best, which is on shorter duration. As we all know that uh, just like your cell phone or your laptop, lithium ion will degrade as you use it. And the more you cycle it, the more it degrades. And because of that, it's, a, I think, a good technology on the shorter duration. It's evolved, I think, to address some of the safety and reliability issues where not only in the event of a, a thermal runaway scenario that can be dangerous, but also people are designing these systems now and, and ourselves included so that if there is a failure, the entire system doesn't come down, but you could actually bring portions of the system down so the system could still function. So I'd say in the last five years, there's been developments both in terms of safety and reliability, but as well as looking at technologies like lithium phosphate, for example, and ways through electrochemistry to come up with different combinations to both reduce degradation, for example, and improve that safety and, and have something that could even provide a longer life. So I think those developments have resulted in the ability for uh, utilities and independent power players to deploy in more volume now, especially driven by what's happening in the macro and the, you know, the incentives that in the U.S. have been put in place now with the IRA to accelerate that clean energy transition. We've obviously seen an acceleration of the interest and investment in energy transition. I mean, it's been highlighted by the benefits to the environment, but also energy security needs with the war in Russia. But a lot of these technologies do tend to go down to the same base materials. Have you seen any challenges on the supply chain for your solutions? Great question and very topical today, especially with this move globally, I'd say, with what's happened with Russia and the Ukraine, with countries to want to be able to be more self-sufficient. And I think as we've seen, I think most intensely probably the last two years, 
uh, with some of the inflationary impacts and the shortages in the supply chain that uh, initially I think started with COVID and then now we're seeing a little bit of a prolongation. I would say it's definitely been very topical around lithium ion. Let me start with our gravity solution because for us, because most of that solution is local, in fact, can be a 100% local because essentially you're just building a building. So foundation, fixed frame, those are all local materials. We try to do it more sustainably. So for us, that means the introduction of uh, making composites, for example, for our composite blocks. And then the power electronics is the other portion of that where you know, we do see some timeframes that are a little further out, but because for our gravity solution, we aren't relying on any rare metals, we do not see anything that would impact a, a schedule by, you know, three, six, nine months. So a, a few months, maybe, uh, just of general supply chain power electronics, but uh, otherwise really no impact for us because of our lack of reliance on rare metals. Now, interestingly, as we look at lithium ion and some of the solutions that we've announced just in the last year that we began deployment. So 2022 for us was our first deployment year because of the nature of the size of the projects that we announced. So we've announced things in the hundreds of megawatt hours in addition to multi-gigawatt hours, uh, for example, to deal with Jupiter Power to support them on local content with a battery supply chain. Uh, it was 2.4 gigawatt hours because of the nature of the volume that we're seeing and signing up with customers, we're getting a lot of very good priority from the battery supply chain. And that led to, for example, in Q4, an acceleration of a project because of priority that we got. And we actually had to pre-announce a higher revenue number. It was that material. So interestingly, the first four projects that we started with batteries are with four different battery suppliers, which gives us diversification as well. So while I think generally we're still going to have problems as a sector and a, and a market. I do expect those things to get better over the next 12 to 24 months. From our side, where we're working with our supplier relationships and with our customers, because a lot of those relationships in some cases are customer driven, we're not seeing anything that's impacting for the projects that we're deploying our schedules and therefore are working in a very, uh, let's say, predictable way with our customers. And in fact, our first projects we announced in the fall last year are being deployed, two of them, in the summer this year. So, you know, you're talking about about nine-month turnarounds on hundreds of megawatt hours. So things are, are moving, you know, pretty quickly and, and we're on schedule on all of those projects. So uh, encouraging, I, I guess, from where, where we see things with our, our customers. Yeah, I guess the concern is as it continues to accelerate trying to meet these goals, you could run into some of those supply crunches. And, and alternatively, that's where hopefully the technology continues to develop. So it becomes more efficient, maybe less metals uh, are needed for the battery storage and so on. Yeah, exactly, David. I, I mentioned some of that earlier to your earlier question around the types of technologies and chemistries being developed. So that's definitely going to be helpful. Secondly, I think the U.S. got a little bit ahead of the curve with the IRA, at least versus the other countries in the world, in trying to incentivize the local build-out of production. And that definitely is going to be helpful, I think, over time. And it's not going to happen right away. But I would say as we get into 2025, 2026, you're definitely going to see in the U.S. a more localized supply chain, and that will be net helpful to the supply constraints we see today. Switching over now to the grid, we've had a number of guests on with some grid enhancing technologies, electrification technologies. But one of the challenges I know is that grid operators aren't really incentivized to invest 
in new technologies or, or, or storage. How have you seen that process and what do you think can be done to help make that a little bit more efficient or accelerate the upgrade of the grid? Great question. And it is something that if you look at grid providers or utility companies, they have a certain investment scheme around CapEx that they're going to utilize to build out technology. And I think having a rate-based asset is their standard way of working. Very interestingly, what we're seeing in some utilities with the IRA that's put incentives more on storage is we're seeing some projects shift from what would have been turbine-based technology or projects or natural gas to with the new incentives, shifting those projects into utilization of energy storage to solve some of those same problems and still an asset that they're going to invest CapEx in and still be a part of their long-term infrastructure. But that's definitely having an impact on the type of storage medium and even the type of generation technology that they want to utilize. And in particular, and as an example in the West, a large Western utility had some projects on the books using uh, gas turbines that they shifted with the IRA into leveraging their excess solar. So they're a a net provider of solar where they overproduce and shifting that to utilization of energy storage because of those incentives. So I think the IRA itself is going to have a, I think, a well-intended effect. And the other perspective I'd share with you coming from the gravity side, where we have a very unique way to build our composite blocks with coal ash. So many, uh, you know, the three largest utilities have a lot of liabilities on their balance sheet with varying amounts of either existing coal ash in ponds or a continued use of coal-fired plants that's going to continue to have coal ash as a, as a byproduct of that. I think getting those utilities to shift how they were planning to deal with that problem, which is spending a lot of money to dig out, transport, and build new specially lined ponds, so to still put it in the ground, but shifting to a more circular economic way to reuse that ash. Some of that is used today in the production of cement, for example, and concrete. However, if you have a solution where you can have a full reuse of that and build that into a new technology, I think getting that as an alternative to what already may be a pre-existing plan can be some different ways to think about solving that problem. And we're definitely trying to do that with our gravity solution. Are you seeing any regional trends for energy storage, whether it's you know certain areas are, are investing more than others or more interested in longer duration or shorter duration, any kind of trends overall that you're seeing? Yeah, we see, I think, based on the geographic locations and weather and other considerations, let's say, for example, in the West, the Western utilities have to be able to have the ability to provision power, uh, whether through an independent or through their own grid, in the event of, you know, some type of weather, uh, severe anomalies that may come up. So whether that be in California, a fire, or in the summer, you have tremendous consumption and spikes uh, because of the use of air conditioning, for example, that resulted in with California every year, we have these rolling blackouts because we cannot meet the, the spike in power needs. So I think the West regionally is dealing with and which is why it's deploying a lot of two to four hour storage to meet those spikes of demand. In addition, the West, and in particular California uh, with the wildfires, I mentioned the use case of lithium ion with green hydrogen with PG&E for Calistoga that we announced in January. That's a very specific use case as a backup in the event of a fire or in California, a seismic event. And to avoid a scenario where you have Uh, many, many hours or even multiple days, which is what actually happened with wildfires, of residents and commercial users being without power. So I think 
regionally, you're going to see solutions like, for example, we announced with PG&E to deal with some unique applications and use cases. I think you have similar things as you move to the southeast and the eastern seaboard with the very well-documented weather events and hurricanes and things that can come up. And I think for those utilities to deal with them in areas of outages, having backup power solutions important, as well as I mentioned, a lot of those eastern utilities have the coal ash problem and they're making that transition to try to decommission coal plants and shift to cleaner sources of power, as well as investing technology to make maybe existing fossil fuel or natural gas be cleaner as a a generation technology. So I think in those cases, you're going to have different types of energy storage solutions and and alternative technologies, both generation and storage, to help meet those needs. As you go to the South, I mean, Texas is, you know, we have very well known what happened a few years ago that resulted in, uh, unfortunately, uh, loss of life with the Texas freeze or, again, these weather anomalies, as you've heard across all three of the regions I just mentioned. The, the severe weather anomalies seem to be getting more prominent and as a result, storage and storage infrastructure becomes more important. And how scalable are your solutions? I mean, what areas have you really targeted for growth opportunities? Well, our current set of portfolio and the way our software works is very interesting because we can take advantage of any new technologies, let alone the conventional technologies. And I think the PG&E deal taking advantage of green hydrogen to do something renewably for multi-day storage that otherwise would only be met by natural gas is a great example but your technology anything any company's developing it better be scalable otherwise it's not going to be investable and i think gravity is a very interesting example where out of the i think four to five companies doing gravity we're the only company that uh, has progressed past either seed or government funding Um, let alone a series A, B, C to becoming a public company. And that's because we developed our gravity technology in a way that didn't require pre-existing conditions. So for example, there's some companies that require a mine shaft that already exists 200 meters in the ground. So that is a dependency on your technology being deployed and therefore makes it more difficult to be truly scalable. So I, I would say that everything that at least Energy Vault will develop will be something that uh, will be scalable or at least have broad market application to most geographies. I think the good news about energy storage is it's such a massive market. You know, there's no silver bullet uh, just because there's different applications and use cases and you aren't going to find one technology that fits all. So because of that, I think having a software platform that can be flexible, which is exactly why we accelerated that development in a way that we can therefore bring the most scalable technologies to meet our customer needs, whether we've developed them, like our gravity solution, for example, or the way we architect our battery solutions to be more dense from an energy and footprint perspective, we can still bring those solutions to the market. And what are the different solutions in terms of size? I mean, going from a battery storage that is, you know, two to four hours to a hydrogen solution that could be, you know, two days versus the gravity. In terms of a physical footprint, how, how big are we talking? Depends on the solution, but if you're looking at, let's start with short duration. I think that's with lithium ion, you've got an energy density that's very well known. That's much better than, for example, the generation technologies of solar and wind, of course, but you still need a specific footprint. So what we're seeing on that side is any solutions where you can somehow 
take advantage of that space, which is in some cases limited, if you can take advantage of that space to try to generate more megawatts of power with that land plot, and that may involve, for example, some stacking of batteries like um, we did for the Wellhead project in California. We were successful in that because we designed a way to develop a product that you could stack and still be safe and meet code versus alternative solutions. And that allowed the customer to meet a requirement by Southern California Edison to get a higher uh, megawatt output over a certain period of time. So I'd say on the the shorter duration, that's going to be important for footprint. I think as you get to longer duration, which we define as let's say four hours and above, four to eight to 12 hours, and looking at solutions there, we have a gravity system that is not as dense as lithium ion, but it's a large utility scale. So that's going to be built out where you have wind turbine farms or solar farms, so not in the middle of the city. And um, so typically, or in places where there's industrial sites like coal ash, for example, so you're going to have areas that already have, in some cases, thousands of acres of land, and the density for the long-duration system, while not like lithium-ion, still a space isn't really a problem. And then as you get into the ultra-long duration, you know that's where the system we designed with green hydrogen, I don't think there's shortages of land, per se, that at least that we see in, in, in alternatives for space. So we aren't going to go in the middle of a city for what we look to you know, deploy and deliver. But I I think for those solutions that are more focused, where you have that density, they can be served on the outskirts of cities. And that's, in fact, how things are getting deployed. We spoke a lot on this podcast about the financing environment and how these technologies and companies get funded. And, And I've always said that there seems to be a little bit of a gap from a company starting out and getting their seed money with the venture capital firms. And then there's the gap until they can really get to a scale and cash flow that gets your traditional bank lending. They can access the capital markets. Now, that seems to be being filled with partnerships a lot, where larger companies are wanting to get involved in the energy transition. They find a technology that's going to be impactful. They invest in it, so they're taking part in it. And you you mentioned earlier some of the partnerships that you have, but how have you seen that financing? How did it work for Energy Vault? And what do you think the financing environment for similar companies that are looking to deploy their technology is going to be in the next few years? Well, it's a great point in question and really getting to the development and getting to scale from a startup. And for Energy Vault, it was fundamental for us, even starting with our Series B investor, uh, which was SoftBank, who also owned an energy company, SoftBank Energy in that case. So that was part of their diligence where they had some very specific things they were solving for and they had that expertise. So I think the first thing I would say and encourage exactly to your point is Having strategic investors early alongside of traditional venture capital, you know, Menlo Park, California-based funds is super important. And it just allows you to get to a market validation point um, that you're solving for a customer that believes in your solution enough, even though it may not be at scale yet, is willing to invest in it. So it's a great market validation point in that for Energy Vault really served as well as we looked at uh, getting to our Series B and our Series C, where we brought on strategic investors like BHP, the largest mining group in the world, and as well as the largest energy company in the world, Saudi Aramco, that invested in our Series B1. And having those investors there that also are willing to help provide funding for pilot projects, for example, because they invested because they're serving uh, not only something they believe is going to be economically viable, but something that is has a let's say a high percentage chance of solving a problem for their parent company. So in all those companies' cases, 
each of those large industrial companies have an arm that make these investments and look at new technologies. So it's really, I think, a, a differentiator. And that, to the final phase, when you do take your company public or you know go ahead and list your company, having a significant amount of strategics behind that, therefore, are making commitments on actual orders and getting to volume deployment is a tremendous de-risker for investors, especially in this environment where if you look at energy storage, there's just not a lot of new companies and technologies out there that are really ready, for example, to get to that scale and get to the, you know, the hundreds of millions into the billions of revenue. Um, the market is there. There's just not a lot of companies that have progressed technology to that extent and therefore the involvement of strategics even more important. Yeah. And I mean, people see the the strategics make an investment. It, you're right. It validates it. Uh, and they're much more willing to put capital behind it. And, and for them, they have a an investment to be profitable, but then it also benefits them to help reduce their carbon footprint in some of their operations globally. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what's behind some of those investments because it is a pressure. Definitely the corporations feel their board of directors, uh, sustainability is becoming such an important theme for where investors put their money. So it's becoming a requirement that a company not only have a good margin profile and is profitable and creating a lot of free cash flow, but if you aren't doing it with a sustainable supply chain or a very credible roadmap to get there, investors are going to shift their money. And it's not even a matter of the individual investor choice. The largest funds in the world are making that a requirement. So it's great to see actually happen across the world where you've got that happening with the large funds combined with some of the largest countries in the world that uh, historically had never made those commitments like China, for example, or India that are the big developing nations that are part of the greenhouse gas emissions. It's very encouraging from where I sit to see those commitments happening. You're right. And all these companies have these business development groups, new ventures. And if you look at uh, what they're hiring for, because you can see they're all out there trying to staff up in these groups, they're all looking at green energy technologies. And that's where these BD teams for all these large strategic companies are investing is to go out and find those technologies, not only to help the environment, but really also to help our own internal operations. Absolutely. And it is a such a difficult problem to solve, the storing of electrons, right? Because it was, <laughs> if it was easier, we'd have many solutions and you would see renewables being deployed more quickly because wind and solar today is 50 to 75% cheaper than the cheapest fully amortized fossil fuel plant, uh, which is, I think, combined cycle natural gas. The problem is storing those same electrons is not only expensive, but difficult to do sustainably. So hence the need for these venture firms to try to find you know, newer technologies that can do it economically, sustainably, and not by 2030, right? I mean, is to try to get something that in the next 12, 24, 36 months can actually be viable. And as I said, it's a, a tough equation to solve. I, I would say as an industry, we're really behind where we should be to have more alternatives to what exists today. And I think it, it, when you look at the world of energy storage, the fact that it's still predominantly, when I say predominantly, primarily, you know, 85 to 90% pumped hydro electric storage that tells you that we are behind to get alternatives out in the market in a more distributed way for storage. And we've talked a little bit about the IRA and the incentives that that has helped provide. What else do you think needs to be done from a policy standpoint that could help accelerate the adoption, deployment, development, you name it, of energy storage across the U.S.? Well, just starting with the IRA, uh, let's start there. I think the U.S. has created a, a blueprint 
for how that can be done that not only would address incentives, but incentives to have it done locally and also sustainably, meaning they included an incentive for non-lithium-based technology because of some of the inherent uh, risks and the degradation with lithium-ion as a, as a technology. So I think fundamentally, the government taking action to provide those incentives across the globe would be a first step. Secondly, you've got some of the biggest companies in the world that have very large market capitalizations and also some of the largest funds in the world. I think BlackRock uh, was the first very large fund to come out back in the fall of 2020 and make a statement saying, we are not investing in fossil fuels anymore. We're shifting our investment thesis and focus to sustainable and renewable technology. And when when that happened and you saw some of the other large funds that followed, I think that really puts a lot of pressure and weight. So whether it's the large investment funds or the largest companies in the world and, and really even getting to not the largest, but even the mid, mid cap companies and small cap companies that are making sustainability commitments, I think seeing more of that happen across the enterprise of companies is also going to be very helpful. And, you know, I would not downplay at all the impact that the individual consumer can have because we vote every day, Dave, with our pocketbook, you know, where we get our gasoline from or whether we buy a, an electric car or non-electric car, you know, which groceries we buy, which products we buy every day. And, you know, there's a way to think about ourselves as a, in a sustainability world of having an index around everything we buy. And there's a lot of, I think, apps and things coming out. So it will educate consumers that every dollar they spend can be spent in a way that could be better for the environment. So I think those three things across the regulatory side, I think the private enterprise or public enterprise side, and even down to the individual consumer level, um, those choices are going to be there, uh, I think, for people to make that could help accelerate things. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The energy transition has really empowered the consumer. And I think it's just getting more information out there so that they could make those educated decisions on things is imperative. I, I think it's really improved over the past 12 months. But in the past, people just said, okay, we'll build a windmill, you know, put a, a solar panel on a roof, and that's your energy transition. It's good to go. But it's so much more complicated than that. And I think your average consumer is starting to understand that as more of this continues to accelerate and becomes a bigger topic. It does. And sometimes it takes a global event or a burning platform to really crystallize that in people's minds. And look, and the one I'm referring to is COVID. Pre-COVID, who would have thought that you could have this global pandemic that essentially brought the world to its needs? And if you go back to March 2020, where there was no roadmap on vaccines, meaning we hadn't developed one, and there was a lot of things in the work, and there was so much uncertainty I know at that time for Energy Vault, we had just been funded by our Series B six months before, and we were trying to ramp the company, and we had to put everything on hold, stopped all hiring, et cetera, because we didn't know what the world was going to look like. And I think you think about climate change and these severe events that we're seeing across the world and, and the impact they can have. I think people are thinking about climate change with that same vein of, wow, something could happen as this planet evolves, that could just change the shape, literally. I mean, physically, the, you, know, you have a rising ocean because we're melting the polar caps. That's changing the face of our Earth. And I think that type of a burning platform that got created with COVID, I believe, was part of you know, one of many reasons why I think the society now is a little bit more you know, behind getting this problem solved more quickly than later. Are there any other technologies that you see out there that are pretty interesting from the energy storage side? Absolutely. I'm 
uh, you know, optimistic and I think by nature of being involved with, for example, a group like Idea Lab, which is, I think, one of the largest, uh, longest running technology incubators here on the West Coast and in the U.S., probably the most prominent one. I see some of the things that are coming that are being invested in that are very encouraging. And I think any technology that's going to, for example, leverage the power of the sun to create future energy sources in a clean way is pretty exciting. I think as you look at the technologies that are looking to take carbon out of the air uh, and direct air carbon capture, for example, I think a lot of those technologies are going to help us reach our goals more quickly. And even technologies that are looking at transporting electricity with less loss along the way. You know, if you think about the sun as an example that you know, the sun itself can power the earth many times over. You know, the problem is it doesn't exist everywhere or uniformly, so you have to transport it. And if you could transport harnessing, for example, solar power in a way with less degradation, you know, over length, then you could solve some pretty big problems. And uh, so I think technologies that are looking at elimination of that loss or reducing it in any event are going to be helpful. So I I think in all these cases, I see technologies coming that are going to help solve the broader problem. I think with energy storage, there's a lot of investments being made in new battery chemistries. They still have to be proven out and proven out at scale and also different applications of existing technology, even gravity Right now, in addition to our EVX platform, we're looking at application across different heights of topographies, for example, in different parts of the world that can be very efficient and extremely low cost because of the pre-existing condition that you can apply your technology to in, in that case. So I think from a storage perspective, there's a lot of new things being developed and some of them may not work out, but some of them will. And I think all of that can help our uh, cause here. So pulling out your crystal ball, where do you see utility scale storage, say 2035, 2050? What are your predictions? By that time, we're definitely going to need longer duration. So I I would say you're going to be looking at storage mediums that can handle that duration without a lot of degradation and therefore very economically and with very high efficiency. So I think by that time frame, you're going to see some of the bets being made in different chemistries or alternative chemistries being played out a little better by that time. I also think you're going to have other technology solutions to surround, for example, I mentioned on looking at how we transport electricity that will create an ability to leverage the sun in a little different way and even to leverage things like our current in the ocean. So there's a lot of interesting things being developed. I think to leverage that and create, for example, more green hydrogen, which I think hydrogen is a potentially has some applications for some use cases, uh, like the one we announced with PG&E there in that project. So I would say by that time period, you're going to have alternatives that we either aren't proven today or we haven't even invented yet that are going to help us deal with this intermittency of some of the renewable technology. The other thing I'd share is, and I know this may be surprising coming from someone in the renewable world, but I think we're going to see development of technologies to make fossil fuel, you know, burn essentially without some of the implications that it has today in terms of the greenhouse gas emissions and to be more efficient and more sustainable. I think there's a lot of investment that's being made in getting our existing, you know, fossil fuel footprint to be more sustainable. You know, I don't believe we're going to be ever in a fully, let's say, 100% only wind and solar world. I think there's going to be alternatives and ways we're going to be generating power and also technologies for storage where where there's going to be a a more pleasant coexistence of all the technologies. I would agree with that. 
So Rob, where can people find more about Energy Vault? Well, our website has information also on our hiring, and we have an info email that you can write to for getting more information. The other thing we have there conveniently on our website, but you can also just Google Energy Vault, is we have a lot of our announcements that we've made with customers about the types of solutions that they're signing up to and that we're deploying, which is uh, always very interesting. We always like to have our customers tell our story. It's not about necessarily what we say we're going to do or or what we think is right or economical, but you know the best way to do that is through our customers and them, let's say, voting with their pocketbook in one sense and and agreeing to deploy the solution. So I'd say um, those things are all on our website, and we are hiring and growing the company rapidly. So really looking for people to join our mission of decarbonization, and in particular in energy storage. Well, Rob, listen, I appreciate you coming on the show. Interesting discussion, and thanks for your time. Dave, thank you for having me. I appreciate uh, the insights and uh, very topical, I think, all of the things you put on the table here. So I appreciate having the opportunity to be a part of that dialogue. Yeah, looking forward to see what Energy Vault does in the future. Thank you. Developments in energy storage technology are playing a key role in the energy transition. The technology doesn't address the issues with wind and solar, such as the physical footprint required for construction or the relatively low capacity, but it does provide the potential for wind and solar to be more useful when needed. The problem of too much electricity for the grid seems to have moved one giant step closer to a solution. I'm David Bammiller, and thanks for joining us. See you next time.